Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 209, Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell. Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, it's not Father's Day yet, but this would be an appropriate episode. We've got a couple of very talented people with us this week talking about their very talented dads. A little bit later on, musician Gunnar Nelson of the band Nelson will reflect on the career and music of his father, Ricky Nelson, who would have turned 82 just a couple of weeks ago. Interesting conversation there. And up first, a woman whose dad... One of the landmark comics of all time, George Carlin, the subject of a new documentary on HBO entitled George Carlin's American Dream. She's a very talented person in her own right, an actress, producer, radio and podcast host. We're talking about Kelly Carlin, who wrote the book A Carlin Home Companion about her family experiences and is an executive producer of the new documentary. We had a great time talking with Kelly about her dad, family and the new film. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us. Ah, Rich, thank you for having me. Well, I have spent the last two nights watching this uh, wonderful documentary, and and what struck me, I think, more than anything is that you can't tell the story of George Carlin's comedy without telling the story of your family. Ah, you get it. You get it. Absolutely. I mean, think about all of us out in the world doing the work we're doing, whatever level of work that is or however much fame or impact we have. Our family, who we surround ourselves with and the the journey we go through with them, always shapes our reality and our life. So I wanted to really make sure that you know, people got to know the man, the husband, the father, the son, uh, and, and the artist behind all of the you know, quote-unquote genius that you see on stage. And uh, understand a young George Carlin learning about that family. A single mom uh, left him alone a lot. Radio uh, became his family in many ways. And uh, I think he described his mother as a drama queen and a narcissist. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and someone who completely influenced him, though. Her love of language her ability to tell a story with a punchline. Um, as you know, you've seen the doc, you know, that great moment where she's on the Mike Douglas show with my dad. <laughs> it's, I mean, she just is the queen bee. So yeah, he, you know, he, he had an interesting upbringing for sure. And I think people would be surprised to be learned that among other things, he dreamed of being Danny Kay. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think that's always a big surprise for people. And yet, you know, you picture he was a young boy in the 40s watching these movies on the big screen. You know, that magic moment when these artists grow up and say, I want to be that one day. But when you look at Danny Kaye and then you look at some of the, you know, the the verbal gymnastics Mm. my dad would do, they're absolutely cut from the same cloth. One of the many great finds in the documentary are those early audio tapes from when your dad was a kid. Yeah, yeah. He saved everything, Rich. (laughs) (laughs) And thank God he did. I mean, 
those are so precious when you hear that. And him, you know, he's imitating radio announcers, like you said, his family members. <laughs> and, you know, he's already practicing the rhythm and how to how to approach something like that and the voices and the imitating and the and the creating a scene out of nowhere. I mean, you know, it was like he was in his own little personal master class around that stuff. Well, he figured things out pretty quickly. One of the first realizations he had was that religion was the first big betrayal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, I think that was his, the start of his, his independent thinking, you know, his deep, deep questioning. This is a man who had deep curiosity and huge questions and, and always asking, why is this happening? Why do we do this? Why do we think this way? And, uh, you know, it makes sense. You know, like you said in the film, it's like, you know, I was supposed to have this big revelation at my first communion and and nothing felt different the next day. (laughs) We're talking with Kelly Carlin here on Downtown. Uh, Your dad joined the Air Force, became a disc jockey in the Air Force and became quite popular doing that. And then uh, met up with his comedy partner, Jack Burns. Did he like being part of a team? Well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't around back then, mm. but um, but certainly from what he's talked about and and what we know through his own writing and his own talking about it, uh, you know, I think for him it was such an awakening, and it you know that 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 shift from DJ to stand up must have felt like such a big one. And to have another person on stage with you who you feel comfortable and you're playing around and you're improvising and you're, you know, they really had an incredible chemistry together, you know, and they were really, you know, best friends. And I, I, you know, I suspect that that was part of it, you know, that, that, that being a part of something and being something, a part of something bigger than you. But like he said in the documentary also, he always knew that he wanted to be a solo act. So I, I think it was a transitional thing for both of them. Well, it was not easy to make that transition. And I, I wonder if it ever would have happened at all had he not met your mother and had that whirlwind courtship because she became immediately uh, the biggest George Carlin booster there was. Yeah, I think it really did help him. I mean, you know, with his talent and his ambition, you know, I have no doubt that he would have found his way. But to have someone in your corner like that and, you know, someone like the love of your life in your corner, uh, that's an important thing. You know, going up on a stage, going out in the world and and thinking independently and being so, you know, vulnerable. I mean, it's a vulnerable thing to be on a stage, no matter how smart and together you look. And, you know, they really were, um, you know, like comrades in arms, for sure. And, and I have to think, given the rough family life he had as a child, to find somebody like your mom, who was such a force of nature, who offered that, uh, in many ways, unconditional love and support, that that had to just be freeing for him. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, certainly after having, you know, that the other major woman in his life being someone who was a little controlling, a little narcissistic, um, but to have someone, yes, that was just there and really, really saw his magic and really, really believed in his talent. Uh, one of the interesting stories in the documentary involves a, a great friend of our show, John Davidson, who was hosting. Oh, I love John, yes. <laughs> he was hosting the Craft Music Hall, and uh, and I, I remember it as a little kid, but I had forgotten that the two comics on that show <laughs> were George Carlin and Richard Pryor. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. That was actually in the doc they show. Richard wasn't a regular. My dad was the lead writer, I guess, in the main comic. But that was a show where Richard and my dad would have a comedian on every week. So there would be some other comic on there also. Um, but in when you see that footage, I don't know. Richard looks, what, 13 years old? I think my dad <laughs> maybe looks 17. They are just so young. And it's so funny to think that in 10 years, who they will turn into. It's amazing. Now, that appearance uh, opened up a whole lot of doors for him and got a lot of gigs, but there was a downside to that, too, that your mother now wasn't uh, wasn't in that role of booking and, and managing every moment of his career. And, and with that alone time, uh, being home with you led to the beginning of, of issues with dependency. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it was the times, you know, it was the mid sixties and, um, you know, my parents were of a, of a generation. They were both born in the late thirties. And so there was this kind of traditional mentality, even though my dad was, you know, breaking out of his mold and it was, you know, hard for my dad. He didn't want me to be a latchkey kid. He wanted my mom to be at home and be a stay at home mom for me. And my mom was very talented and very smart and, and had her own ambitions in the world. And, you know, my dad was like, no, I, I need you to be at home. And she, you know, had a proclivity already for drinking and stuff like that. And, you know, it was a time uh, where people did a lot more of that anyway. And it did. It eventually led down a pretty dark path to her, a very dark path um, that all of us walked with her. And, uh, you know, like a lot of average American families, addiction, mental health issues, um, certainly in the 60s, were never talked about, or even in the 70s, we're only just starting to talk about these things now in a really open, real way. And so it, you know, it was one of those family secrets, you know, that we all pretended it was all okay and it was all going to be fine. But my mother was deeply suffering and my dad had his own foray into stuff and he was deeply suffering around that stuff. And, you know, it, it really does affect a family. Well, and as you point out, both in the documentary and in your wonderful book, uh, you were, of course, right in the middle of that and, and certainly experienced a great deal of trauma trying to officiate some of these uh, battles that the two of them would get in when substances took over. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's a pretty, I mean, the reason I wrote the book initially was because I knew a lot of these experience I had had, you know, yes, I come from this extraordinary family kind of a thing, but man, isn't this an ordinary experience? Mm. How many of us grew up in a pretty chaotic household where, you know, there was some sort of issue like that and where, I was an only child, or maybe it's the oldest child or whoever it is, someone is trying to, you know, wrangle the adults. And, you know, during the 60s and the 70s, a lot of people were playing out their own adolescence. Parents were. And so there were no adults in the household, for, you know, and so the kids became what they call parentified. Can you share some of the story of the Hawaiian vacation? That was such a powerful story. Yeah. So what had happened was we were going on our first, my dad was finally making some money. We went to Hawaii and uh, my parents had been having some issues and some arguing and a lot of cocaine and alcohol mixed in. And my parents have, you know, we were at this beautiful resort and my parents are, you know, 10 hours a day screaming and yelling at each other. And I had just 
it just, I lost it. I finally could not take it anymore. I finally, finally stood my ground. And my, you know, I think my mother like picked up a knife and was like lunging at my dad. And I threw my body in between them and had a complete and total meltdown. And it really made my parents, you know, stop and really, you know, be taken aback by it. And I sat down and I wrote out a UN style peace treaty uh, that said, like, I, George Carlin, will not snort cocaine. I, Brenda Carlin, will not drink alcohol. Um, and then the part of the story that you don't hear in the um, in the documentary is that, you know, uh, they signed it, and it was all great. And then 20 minutes later, my dad goes and locks himself in the bathroom. My mom accuses him of bogarting all the blow. And then she marched right down, you know, to the bar and started drinking again. And it was just like this futility inside of me um, that was so frustrating. But that incident did really wake up my dad and really made my dad know that he had to figure out a way to get uh, to get us out of that. We're talking with Kelly Carlin on downtown. What was the turning point, if it was one moment, when he decided to go in a different direction in, in his career? He'd been very successful as the the button-down comic appearing on Merv Griffin and Ed Sullivan and all these shows, but what made him decide to take on a different point of view? You know, I think it was cumulative. I think he always had that point of view inside of him, but the actual taking of the leap was many little incidences over and over again, and part of it was this kind of repetitive, people just wanting him to do the, you know, the Indian sergeant or the, you know, the wonderful wino or the hippie dippie weatherman, and that he wasn't evolving, but but his friends, all of his musician friends and other artists were evolving, and he wasn't, he wasn't himself on the outside. He'd left himself out of his act, and so he had a lot of personal revelations around that, and then he got fired from Vegas, and it was like, okay, well, the writing's on the wall, you know, and uh, he just, he, he had he had to take a stand for himself as an artist and as a human being and and go for it. And then uh, really the connection with HBO is what got things rolling for him in that next phase of his career. Yeah, absolutely. HBO came along. They were a place where he could use the language. He could explore anything. He had, you know, been at the top of his game and they loved him and he helped build HBO. He was a special, everyone knew that you had to go to HBO to, to watch his stuff. And, um, and it, you know, it gave him a playground uh, for the next, you know, 35, 40 years. What I didn't know and I was fascinated to learn was the role that Flip Wilson played. You know, it's funny because I was a kid and I remember we hung out with Flip and we were on the little little David record label, but I didn't know that little tidbit also until I watched the documentary that that Flip really created that label to help people and artists like my dad be able to really have full freedom of speech, which I I just think is such a beautiful thing. Now, I I work I'm a high school teacher, so I, I work with teenagers. Uh, for anybody, that's that's a difficult time in life. But uh, how much more difficult is it when you grow up in a family that's that's that well known? Um, well, I grew up here in Los Angeles around a lot of families that were that well known, and so in some ways. I was kind of always the outlier because at least my dad wasn't Cary Grant, which is a really weird thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is weird. You, it's weird. You go out and people recognize your dad and, you know, you kind of are invisible all the time in those situations. And and it's weird. You go and watch a concert and people are chanting his name. And, you know, it's it's definitely a strange life, Rich. <laughs> 
Well, the the love story of your parents is a remarkable one. And when they put some of those demons behind us and they committed to, to staying in that relationship and to spending more time together, uh, it, it sure looks like for the two of them and, and probably for the whole family, that was the best time of their lives. It really was. It, it really was. And to be able for them to be able to go full circle and to meet again where they started and to be able to support each other in that phase of their life was was really a beautiful gift and such a deep, deep healing. And, um, you know, when I talk about when I used to do my solo show or I talk about my book and now talking about the documentary, you know, no matter what, we loved each other. And I really believe that it was love that got us through. The, the story of your mom's death is is absolutely heartbreaking to watch. Yeah. It came so suddenly. Uh, your dad was out on the road at the time, and you you didn't want him to go, um, but but he felt he had to do that. He had just uh, uh, was it the brain droppings book that he had just yeah. come out with and was making that tour. What a uh, what a challenging time that had to be for you in the middle of that. Yeah, I mean it was it was tough on all of us. My dad, you know, was making these horrible Sophie's choice, and and I was stuck at home and, you know, and none of us were really talking about what was going on. That was kind of part of our dysfunction as a family, even though we were all, you know, healthier and mental health wise, we were all better and all of that. We still had these old habits of not being able to really share what we needed from each other. And of course, my dad really believed he was doing the right thing. He really thought that my mom had more time um, and he was told that she did. And so, you know, he, 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 he did what he believed what he needed to do, which was be a good provider. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a heartbreaking ending. It really is. And, and it really makes me so dedicated to really making sure that, you know, the choices I make in my life are always about, you know, connection with people. And my dad was that way too, but his work also, he's a, he's one of those people that his work was a huge part of his life. And, you know, he was devastated after my mother died. He was so depressed that first year. I was worried that he was going to go, like he was going to have a heart attack or something. So, um, you know, it, it really, it affected all of us. And I, and I know it was, such a burden for him. But it did end up in a positive note to changing the way the two of you communicated. And well, in comedy, we talk about callbacks and there's a great callback in the documentary to that Hawaii peace treaty when you called your dad and talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such an amazing moment in my life that I got to go back to that exact location where all that had happened and to walk down that beach and to really feel how all of the pain and the suffering of the Carlins had truly been healed and that, you know, it was done and it was gone and it was released. And to have this really profound, beautiful conversation on the phone with my dad about that. And then he died two days later. Mm. And it was just, it was just such an interesting thing because it was like, you know, was the burden lifted off of him so that he could go or, you know, whatever your belief system is around that. But um, I just thought, thank God we had that conversation. I was so struck by something John Stewart said in the film because, and I'm sure you've heard this from a million people through the years, but uh, growing up as I did and we're around the same age, uh, the, the two people who most influenced uh, my sense of what was funny, but also my sense of how to interpret the world, those two people were George Carlin and Kurt Vonnegut. 
Wow. Well, you picked two good ones. <laughs> Vonnegut was a huge one for me, too. Uh, you know, Cat's Cradle shaped my shaped mm. my thinking about the world. Uh, so not, not surprising. I mean, they're both men who really took a, a very, you know, a, a very real glance at the human condition. And with biting humor, uh, we're able to construct ways of, of seeing the world uh, with both heart, uh, but also with a keen, sharp eye. <laughs> yeah, and I think your dad talked about it was loving people and believing in them, but completely yeah. distrusting institutions. And there's a lot of discussion in the film about the end of his career when, when things got quite dark in his performances. But I, I think, gosh, if you watched humanity as closely as he had for as long as you had, you really didn't have a choice but to be skeptical that we could figure it all out. Yeah. I mean, there has been great progress in human history, obviously, not just technologically, but also with the advancement of more people having more access to, you know, safety and stability and and flourishing and thriving in the world. It's it's not done. It's not perfect. Um, but, you know, overall, there's there's been progress. But but it is what it is. We are creatures who, you know, uh, you know, we have two different ways. We're either cooperating or we're punishing each other. And and we have to, you know, waking up to, to our own part in that is, I think, essential. And I think that's the thing my dad struggled with is, you know, wake up, people, wake up. His comedy is timeless. And we were talking about it earlier on the show, barely a week goes by when you don't find yourself quoting George Carlin or seeing something absurd in the world and, and wondering how he would respond to it. But the other thing that comes through in this documentary is just his his fundamental decency and, and kindness. And, and it wasn't in this film, but it was in Judd Apatow's uh, wonderful documentary about Gary Shandling and the kindness that your father showed him as a young comic. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Gary and I became dear friends after my dad died when Gary, you know, connected with me. And yeah, my dad would go and he would help comics. And so Gary was a young engineer student in Arizona and drove two hours to show my dad some writing that he had done for my dad. And my dad said to him, you know, well, I write my own stuff, but I'll read it over and come back tomorrow. And he did and said to Gary, you know, Gary, there's something funny and good on each one of these pages. You know, if you were to choose to do this, I would encourage you. And, you know, that really gives a young artist, all of us that, you know, you're a high school teacher, you understand, you know, we need those words from our heroes or from people we look up to um, in order to give us the courage to step out into the world in our own way. And my dad loved helping young comics, open mic comics, all sorts of comics, but he never, ever talked about that, that, that he did that. Well, this is such an absolutely wonderful film, and I'm so glad that uh, uh, new people will be introduced to the work and, and the life of your father. I saw you were at a screening the other night. What's it like for you personally to see your family story up there on the big screen? I have to tell you, Rich, it's a little weird because, um, you know, I did a solo show and and I, uh, you know, wrote this book. But to be in an audience while people are watching your life story, it's it's a little intense. I have to say it's a little intense, but um, I'm really proud of it. I'm really happy and I'm really thrilled that people get to see the full humanity 
of the Carlin family and all of the love and all of the trials and all the tribulations and all of the victories um, so that people really understand the life that shaped this man and shaped his thoughts. George Carlin's American Dream premieres May 20th on HBO. And if you want to learn even more about the man and the family, uh, read Kelly's wonderful book, A Carlin Home Companion, as well. Uh, Kelly Carlin, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Rich, thank you so much for having me. It was a, it was a real pleasure. It's Kelly Carlin talking about George Carlin's American Dream here on Downtown the Podcast. A quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance. We'll be back with Gunnar Nelson next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Nelson and their monster hit Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection. Gunnar Nelson, along with his brother Matthew, make up the band. We had a chance to talk with Gunnar about their music, but also about the legacy of their dad, Rick Nelson, who would have turned 82 just a couple of Sundays ago. Gunnar, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on your show, and hello to the listeners. Well, you know, we had Matthew on uh, about a year and a half ago. He, he set the bar pretty high for the Nelson family. Oh, you had Matt on the show? I'm sorry. <laughs> I must have been busy. Sorry about that. Yeah, we we, we we took second best, but now, now we're feeling good about things here. Well, uh, this past weekend was a milestone. Uh, your dad would have turned 82 years old on Sunday, and that's uh, it's it's hard to believe. And, and when I think about that, I think, obviously, about you and your brother and the family and the personal loss, but also about all the great music that we've missed out on. Oh, yeah. Look, we have the unfair advantage of having his music around. And so to me, I really don't feel like he's, he's ever really left. You know, I, I feel so bad for, for people who don't have that advantage. But every now and again, when I'm, I'm starting to feel a distance there, you, you never know when you're going to go into the, to the grocery store and traveling man's playing or something like that. And I get these little reminders all the time. And, and I always like to focus on, on, on the life that he lived, not, uh, not his passing. Uh, you know, for a reason, he made uh, so many people happy spending his life uh, for, for to, to make music and, and to bring it to people. Now, I have to ask, when you got started professionally, you and Matthew, was there any desire to make sure that you were going to be a success on your own? Like, let's not be Nelson, let's be, I, I don't know, Johnson & Johnson or something. Did you think about that, or did you just say, look, our music is good enough that it, it's going to make it, and people won't judge us by our name? Well, we thought, you know, look, ultimately it really comes down to the quality of the music. And it's important to note that Matt and I sold 10 million records to a bunch of kids who had no idea who Ricky Nelson or Ozzy and Harriet were. I mean, they, they really didn't. I mean, mm. the only people that were really impressed by that 
were the uh, folks that were from an older generation that perhaps grew up with our dad's music or the family television show. But uh, but the kids who bought our records, they they were there because, you know, they thought Matthew was cute and they liked our music. <laughs> now, how big a help was the family? Because they had all been there, not, not just uh, your mom, but your grandparents, your uncle. Uh, they understood show business. Were they able to help you guys adjust to you know, the massive wave of publicity that came after the result of that record? Uh, well, no, actually, they didn't, they didn't help in that sense. I don't think anything or anybody could have prepared anyone for that kind of success. It was kind of like, uh, well, I mean, it was like new kids on the block level success at a time when the entertainment world was really dictated by what was hot on MTV. MTV was the biggest radio station at the time and really the tastemaker for people's careers. And we were really blessed. We had four number one MTV, MTV videos and we were VJs as well. And that's what really gave us an edge when we started out. We got that kind of visibility in front of millions of people. And that's what really did it for us. But we weren't prepared for, gosh, not being able to be seen out in public together. Matt, that's my best friend. And, you know, we would always hang out and do all that stuff. But when things were crazy uh, back in the heyday, which I highly recommend a person does when they're as young as we were, um, you know, we, it got to the point where we couldn't even go to a shopping mall together with, without creating a stir. So, um, you know, it's something that I was so grateful that we did when we were young. Um, and I'm, I'm even more grateful that people have connected with these songs that we wrote and they've made them a part of their lives and, and little time machines for them and stuff. There's, a, there's really a, a lot to be proud of, and it's really been a great journey so far. Now, when the song went to number one, uh, you guys set a record, the first family to have number one songs in three generations. When did you guys really embrace that family tradition? Well, I, you know, for us, it was kind of a, a normal, like, uh, people ask us, hey, you know, what was it like growing up in that particular family as far as uh, social proof in doing music? And to me, it, I don't suspect it'd be any different than life under the roof of the Manning household. You know, mm. you grow up with, with Archie and then you have, you know, your brother Peyton and all that stuff. And that's just kind of what you do. And for us, that was really our normal. You know, I don't remember a time when I was growing up when our dad didn't have an acoustic guitar in his hand when he was sitting around the house writing songs. And, you know, I, everybody that came over to the house, everyone sang like a bird and could pick a harmony and stick to it in a second. And that's, that's just, it was my normal. Was, I didn't think that that was extraordinary at all until later on when I realized that, you know, that's, uh, that's really kind of a, a special skill. But for us, man, it was just a Wednesday. <laughs> We're talking with Gunnar Nelson here on Downtown. Uh, you and Matt uh, do your own music on tour. You also do the Ricky Nelson Remembered Show. And, I, and I, I've said forever, I don't think your dad gets enough credit uh, in, for a number of reasons. First of all, those early records when he was just a young guy himself, you listen to those records from the late 50s and early 60s, and they hold up better than almost anything from that time period, oh, I think. Oh, man, those guys were ripping. you got to think about this. Time, cats. Okay, this is, there was no technology to speak of. So if you couldn't throw this stuff down live, you didn't even go into the studio. And you, you, you got to think. I mean, our dad had the, the smarts to have James Burton, the legendary yeah. Kelly man on, <laughs> on lead guitar. Uh, great songwriters around him, like the Burnett Brothers, uh, doing songs like Believe What You Say. And, and, uh, and, and I got a feeling that that rockabilly thing, our dad's very real friend at the time when he was a teenager, he was hanging out with Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent. So, you know, he had that, that great rockabilly spirit. 
and did all those incredible songs through the first phase of his career. And then when the industry and the world changed with the singer-songwriter era, he reinvented himself with the Stone Canyon Band and became like one of the founding fathers of country rock, writing his own material, uh, it kind of culminating with the song Garden Party about his own life experience. And having that around us at that time, that's, that was the second phase was really what Matt and I grew up with. So uh, having that around us was incredible social proof when we wanted to make music. It's like our, our dad always told us to be writers first and foremost. And I, I think I'm the most proud of that. I, I love the fact that Ozzy had a number one in 1935 with his big band called, a uh, song was called And Then Some. And Pop had Traveling Man and Hello Mary Lou, which were great. But Matthew and I were the first generation of Nelsons to actually write our own number one, which I, I think he would have been really proud of. Well, I, I told Matt this story uh, back in, in 1985, just um, less than six months before your dad passed away. I emceed a concert that he did up here in Maine, and I got a chance to, to hang out a little bit with him backstage before the show, and he was he was so kind. I was you know young radio guy at the time. He was so very nice to me, and but I was talking with him about some of the new music he had made and, and how much I enjoyed it. And I remember him saying, yeah, you, you, me, and a handful of my closest friends. <laughs> he said, you know, people want to, they want to hear the old stuff. And I, you know, I understand that. I get that. But I, I'm just going to keep also making the music that I love. But he was very appreciative uh, that I had taken the time to listen to that music. And uh, I, I just, I really enjoyed the opportunity. He was such a, a nice guy who, who understood that you owe the fans this, but you also owe it to yourself to be true to, to yourself as an artist. It's a balance. It really is a balance that you've got to strike. And, and your story, it really resonates with me. I, I was just telling a good friend of mine not a few minutes ago that, that I am actually most jazzed when I hear people relate stories about how they ran into our father and they had a personal experience and he was just a sweet person and he was kind and he was caring and he was genuine. To me, that means more than the half a billion singles he sold. You know, that's, the, that's a real legacy right there. And I'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that caught our dad in a star moment or something. It just wasn't who he was. So thank you for sharing that story with me. And, and I know that he felt that way at that particular time. That would have been around the time he made a record called Rudy the Fifth, yes. right before Garden Party. And Rudy the Fifth was made when our dad was completely forgotten. He was wished off into the cornfield by his label at the time. And there's some artistic freedom that can be found in obscurity and irrelevance. And he was at that point where he didn't have somebody from the record company looking over his shoulder in the recording studio telling him he had to do more hits or whatever. He got to make Rudy the Fifth and the Garden Party record from total artistic freedom. And to, to this day, actually, the Rudy the Fifth record, which is his least successful commercial release, is my favorite album he's ever done. I also love the the, the late album he did uh, down in Tennessee. And uh, man, it was great. And he was one of the first people I knew to cover a John Hyatt song. He had a great ear for what made a good song. Oh, he really did. He, he loved that. And, and I know you're, you're actually mentioning a record called The Memphis Session. Yeah. And, and I, I love that record. They, after our dad passed, they went back into the studio and they sweetened it up a bit. Um, I actually liked what they did with it quite a bit. I thought they did a really, really good job. And uh, I believe the executive producer, if not the producer on that, was the guitar player in Dwight Yoakam's band. And he just has this, uh, this great respect for, I mean, true rockabilly and stuff. And they really did honor our dad's legacy with that record. So uh, when you and Matthew are performing your dad's songs, is there, is there a favorite for each of you? 
it's different for each one of us. I think Matthew likes Garden Party because it's a crowd favorite. Um, I love singing Lonesome Town, to be honest with you. I, I, I really do love that song. I think it's a wonderful, melancholy uh, sort of tune. And, and selfishly speaking, I, I get to do it pretty much by myself, so I get to pretend I'm half Nelson for a couple of minutes. <laughs> now, look, the rest of us have uh, uh, home movies. You have a television show to go back and watch. Do you ever stumble upon those old Ozzy and Harriet episodes and say, well, th there's my family history? Well, hey, stumbling's not necessary anymore. We actually spent the whole lockdown period of time uh, taking the original 35-millimeter master tapes from all 435 episodes of Ozzy and Harriet, and we digitized those and, and remastered them into 4K high def. So that's coming out on Time Life in the next couple of months. We're, and it's all 435 episodes. So we're pretty excited about that. Well, yeah, people may forget that that was one of the longest and may still be one of the two or three longest running situation comedies in the history of television. It's the longest running live action sitcom. And I only say that because it's only surpassed by The Simpsons. And it's not fair because they're cartoons and they never age. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It's so great to talk about your dad. Uh, I would imagine that at eighty-two, he'd still be out there making great music today. I'm brother I'm a... at, at eighty-two. He'd look like he's forty years old. And he'd be annoying all of us with that. He just had the best genetics in the world. But uh, yeah, I mean, he'd just be out there and he'd be rocking. He'd probably be uh, doing more country than ever. I, I think I have a feeling he'd probably go go more down that road than anything. And, uh, and, and I'd be playing drums in his band and Matthew would be playing bass and, and that'd be great. And, you know, who, who knows, you know, um, I know where I'm going when I'm not here anymore and I know they've got a heck of a band. So I, I'm, I'm just, I can't wait for the tryouts. Just not yet. Well, I know this from, from seeing him in person and, and this was a pretty small club here in Maine, but he, he worked that room like he was playing Madison Square Garden. Uh, he was a pro, and, and from what I've seen of, of you guys, uh, you've got that in the gene pool as well. You guys, guys know how to perform and give the fans what they want. And uh, having talked to both you and Matt now, look, uh, you know who my favorite is, but but you guys are great. <laughs> we, we'd love to have you back anytime. Matthew's everybody's favorite, and I don't blame you. It's okay. <laughs> but uh, I'm the acerbic twin. I, I, I get it. But, uh, yeah, thank you for saying that. Look, uh, you know, I, it always impressed upon me. Our dad never phoned it in. Our dad was never going through the motions. Our dad never hit the stage because it was a cash grab. You know, every single show he played like it was his last. And Matt and I take that same, that same ethics with us when we're actually on stage. I don't care where we're playing. We're going to give you the same show if we're playing at the Enormo Dome as if we're playing in a club. Uh, it's going to be the same, the same thing because this is something that we get to do, not something that we have to do. And every day that we, we, we get to do this, we keep that in mind. Well, Gunnar, thanks so much for, for keeping the memory alive of your dad, his life, and his music. And the great music that you guys do is terrific as well. So good to talk with you. Our best to Matt and hope to talk with both of you down the road. Well, thank you so much. And to all your listeners, you guys have a great year and get out there this summer. Have some fun. See some concerts. That sounds great. Thank you, Gunnar. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Gunnar Nelson talking music and especially that of his dad, Rick Nelson, here on Downtown. Our thanks to Gunnar. Thanks to Kelly Carlin. And thanks to you for listening this week. Uh, we'll see you next time here on Downtown, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.